Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, some saber-rattling with Iran. We'll talk about it with the crew, which is one-quarter Iranian and four-quarters fed up with this bullshit. Like, this isn't going to result in Iranians mistrusting their own government, which I think is what this administration wants. It's just going to result in Iranians mistrusting America even further. Why would you you want to permit that? And then we'll talk about Filipino President Rodrigo Duterte, drug enforcement, and your money. The Philippine military budget 35% of it actually is U.S. money. And, you know, a third of it wouldn't function without the U.S. arms sales. We are back today with the crew. I'm Mackenzie Fagan, host of 112BK. And joining me, we have... Mira Al-Rahim. I'm the podcast editor for the show. I'm Isabel Alcantara. I'm the associate producer. And I'm Shirin Barry, and I'm one of the producers of the show. Thank you for joining me again, you guys. So today we're going to talk about Iran. It's upsetting. It's depressing. um, And I especially want to talk about it because of you, Shirin. So you were from Mm -hmm. Iran. Yes. um, And I'm curious about how the recent saber rattling and escalation is going for you and for your family. So... It's been like two weeks since Trump started this escalation of war with Iran. And now that it kind of seems that the dust has settled, a lot of people are heaving this sigh of relief and they're like, oh, you know, Trump doesn't want a real war with Iran. Um, It was just rhetoric. But I feel like they forget that that sanctions is war and the sanctions are hurting people and it's hurting them where it really hurts. The Iranian economy is falling apart and there's some serious shortages in the food industry and in, uh, in terms of medicine, some of the medicine are uh, essential medicines. So there really are, like, if that isn't a kind of war, like if, if economic starvation isn't a form of war, then I don't know what, what is. And I feel like a lot of people don't see that. They just see everything like dying down. So a brief recap is that, you know, we had detente for a while and then Trump came in and was like, actually, I'm not going to be honoring the terms of this deal that Obama reached. This was a terrible deal for the U.S. Um, And so he started imposing Mm -hmm. sanctions. And I feel like I personally have no idea what it's like to live under sanctions, like what that actually means. I have an academic understanding Mm -hmm. that it means that like goods and services are limited and that flow is limited. But like, what does that mean if you are living under sanctions, practically speaking? You mentioned that like medicines are hard to access. Medicine is hard to access. And some of the medicine, like 40% of the medicine are stuff like chemo or medicine for ALS. If I'm just sort of like a normal everyday person, like how, how has my life changed since the sanctions were reimposed? Well, your income is uh, mm-hmm. a slash. The Iranian real has lost about 60% of its value. So that means that a lot of the savings have completely, like a lot of people lost a lot of their sa- savings. So like right now, there's like this sense of hopelessness in Iran um, and this sense of like, you know, like numbness, I guess. For me, that's super alarming. Mm-hmm. Do you think a lot of the, like the, the sentiment that arises from that, because when you're when you live in Iran and you see that the U.S. government is effectively just like stepping on the neck of your economy, and like as a regular person, do you see like the United States sort of like unchecked international power in any sort of different way? Because I know like in Mexico, like we like that's like the the invisible hand 
is hilarious because it's not invisible. It's not right. invisible. It's no. attached to America. It's attached to America. Yeah. Is, that, is that the same sentiment? Absolutely. I feel like the Trump administration's main goal is to basically, I don't know, like get Iranians so pissed off with their government so they would go and change it. But that's like a really naive and wrong assumption because sanctions never work, you know? You can't be fighting for reform on a hungry stomach, you know? Right. And even if you are, like, that's like desperation, right? Yeah. And that, then again, I think that leads to these um like strong men autocrats despots that we end up seeing all over the world right because like the like a country reaches a point of desperation it break it breaks and says we're going to ally with a person that says i can get this thing done right i'm right? willing to Absolutely. give up some like personal freedoms in order exactly. to have food on my table correct exactly yeah i'm curious mira the recent escalation was because the government had received quote unquote credible threats mm -hmm. about missiles or about some sort of like escalation in in Iran's military machine is that right am it I, was like no they they there, there were some attacks on ships in the Persian Gulf mm -hmm. region and they said they had credible uh proof that it was actually Iranians who who launched those attacks I see but no one Even, can corroborate no right. one, yeah that is this credible. Mira is this bringing back any memories of uh <laughs> anything with our lifetime <laughs> yeah talk to us about this idea of of credible threats well I think the refrain that I keep on coming back to as I see this news breaking and, and reading, you know, reading all the coverage is history sighs and repeats itself. And I can't help but try to draw comparisons between the situation right now and what was going on in 2003 um, on the eve of America's invasion of Iraq. Yeah, remind us about that and where were you at that time? So, God, I must have, how, much, how old would I have been? I would have been like nine years old. Living in London. Well, you're a baby. I was a baby. I was a baby, but you know, I was cognizant of what was going on. I mean, absolutely. I, I a sentient baby. A sentient yeah, very, baby. Yeah, very smart baby. I have baby. a politically, you know, politically fluid engaged. family. Yeah, yeah very politically And you were living family. in London, but you guys are originally, you're Iraqi? My, my father's Iraqi, my mother's Lebanese. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that what I find partic particularly disconcerting is while the threat of Saddam in 2003, like, was so overstated. And a lot of American intelligence was, you know, cat was proven categorically false. I mean, people knew at the time. The, the 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 issue at hand is that Iran actually has an army that will bite back, whereas Saddam in 2003 did not. I mean, Saddam was a strong man, but he didn't have the military capabilities that Iran in 2019 has. Well, is that true? Because I feel like I I have no. On one hand, I'm hearing there's credible threats, mm -hmm. and yes, they are going to restart their nuclear program. And on the other hand, I'm hearing this is all trumped up. And actually, Iran just wants to be able to feed itself. It has a military, but it didn't. I don't think Iran wants to go to war either. Like in the past hundred years, Iranians have only gone to war once, and that was against Saddam Hussein when it mm -hmm. invaded a part of Iran. So it was it was to defend itself. Right. Um, Iran has been fighting its uh, wars largely through proxy allies mm -hmm. in the region, which is why what when when news came of like these ships in the Persian Gulf being attacked by Iran, it just doesn't make any sense right. because that's not their mo. I think yeah. I think also the the Iranians have remained so patient over the last three years. I think I agree. Right? Mm -hmm. They they really I think they've I think they've really sought to wait out this storm, or at least up until recently, I think that was the tactic going yeah. forward. Is that you know they would just wait until the turnover of power, and I think push is really quickly coming to shove. We don't need more proxy wars in the region. It's really upsetting that this is the only way this war is going to 
be expressed if it does come to like full out conflict. Mm -hmm. And the people who will pay the price are not people who have a lot of money living in the region. They're not the policymakers. They're like the middle class. They're 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 the lower classes. They're they're already disenfranchised. They're the women and children. And just to think that uh, it's all coming to this is really, I mean, unthinkable. Right. (laughs) I mean, I just keep on coming back to the people, those people who you mentioned, the people who are on the ground, the people who can't emigrate, the people who don't want to emigrate. Absolutely. and about how it does seem like how many years since sanctions were reimposed? Two years, three years? Something yeah, like two years. Three years of turning the other cheek and being like, Trump is going to be a passing phase. We still have the support of Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we want to stick to our terms of the mm-hmm. agreement, even if the United States has decided to go rogue and, and not honor their word. Mm-hmm. Um, and just thinking about like how much can people take? You know, do you watch Veep? Does anyone watch Veep? Mm-hmm. Okay, there's a really funny line. And it's it's I say funny now, but actually when I think about it, it's it's sort of creepy. It's but a dark and funny show. It's a dark and funny yeah. show. Selena Myers, who is the the veep in this in this context, um, talking about how she wants a war this time around if she wins the presidency, uh, as if it's like some sort of cachet for I a mean, president. I mean, it feels to have really real. It like, is, right? it, I don't think it is an accident that this saber rattling is happening. Right, mm-hmm. exactly, before yeah. an election. Like, mm-hmm. what you want is for the American populace to feel like there is a foreign threat. It's Iran. They're going to develop nuclear weapons. The, and Ameri- we need to keep the administration stable. Otherwise, who knows what will happen? That's it, right. But I can't, I can't really pinpoint a, 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 a clear sentiment on behalf of the American public that, like, do, do people even want this? I can't even tell. I don't think people want a war, but if you get them scared enough. Mm. But what 2003 have, which 2019 doesn't, is 2001, right? Yeah, I mean, true. you needed 9-11 to happen. Yeah, right. And, and, and you That's know, what I, I know this can right. potentially sound so contentious, yeah. but you needed 9-11 yeah. to happen in you order need... for 2003 to be legitimized. Not that it was ever legitimate. I mean, I don't know. Like, the American psyche has been, like, so split since the election of Donald Trump. Yeah. So there's the point where the American public is constantly thinking of its current political climate as a climate of distrust, of um, lack of transparency, of all of these things that stirred right after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Like all of these things are constant. There's like massive distrust in the government. There's massive distrust in the system. And if there's a way to rally the American public, it's through military action mm. that is the number one way to win an election really it's so Absolutely. weird because it may you make it sound like it's like it's like we're we've not grown you Vet, know that's so retro have we grown look at our president no, no, no. i know <laughs> no, it's but like, all and like just one big veteran, retro messed up we're backlighting it is and like veteran yeah. culture is like has a chokehold on the united states right and that's the thing like like a lot of countries don't have I was born right in the middle of the Iran-Iraq war. And I remember growing up at a time where you'd see like all these faces, like all the names of the streets were named after like people who had like been who had been killed in the war. Like and sacrificed who their sacrificed lives. their yeah, lives. And I feel like America and it's interesting because they both mm-hmm. have that. And they're both trying to use that to basically shape hearts and minds for their own agenda. You know, and I feel like the Iranians have been trying to kind of like meet halfway, especially when they signed the nuclear deal, I feel like everyone was so hopeful for a change. And now a lot of people are just like, you know, like 
this is why the Iranians can never trust America, you know, the American government. Mm -hmm. Like time and time again, the U.S. has interfered in Iran's politics. This is and this is going to ultimately backfire on the Americans insofar as that you're just saying it like this isn't going to result in Iranians mistrusting their own government, which I think is what this administration wants. It's just going to result in Iranians mistrusting America even further. Why would you know, why would you want to? permit that. I don't understand. Well, it. Donald Trump is a great statesman, so yeah. I'm sure yeah. that of course. he really knows what that's right. Shereen, I have sort of like a, an interpersonal question. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I didn't know how to talk to people who say had experienced a death of someone close mm-hmm. to them until my dad died. Yeah. Or, you know, like when somebody has cancer, I feel like I'm all thumbs. Like I don't know the right thing to yeah. say. And I feel like in this situation, you know, somebody whose country is under sanctions and somebody who, you know, American rhetoric is like escalating to talk about war. Um, same with my friends from Venezuela. I just am not sure like what to say or how to express sympathy um, and solidarity with people. Do you have, I don't know, do you have any advice for people who maybe have friends from Iran in their lives about like how we can support and help at this moment? I think like the most important thing is to, I know this sounds really cliche, but vote, you know, Mm. call your representatives. In terms of like speaking to someone, just know that, you know, as an Iranian now, I feel so helpless. And one of the reasons why it feels so hard for me to talk about this is because I literally feel so helpless. If you're if you're a white American listening to this, don't apologize to Shireen for what your country's doing, because that's that's some weird shit, too. <laughs> I feel like there have I been times in my life where I've told people like I'm Iraqi. I've told Americans and they're like, I'm so sorry for what this country did to you. And I'm like, shit, it wasn't your fault. <laughs> Damn. Like, okay, that's good to hear, because honestly, I do like as an American citizen, I do feel a huge amount of guilt towards all of the people who we have colonized and invaded right. and done terrible things to. I know that's not me. Yeah. But like I do feel like, oh, I, I'm a, I'm American. I My th- country did that. Mm-hmm. I think guilt is fine to an extent, yeah. but yeah, to agree. then have it manifest into like an I'm really an sorry. Apology. For, an apology is really interesting, strange. right? Because <laughs> then you're putting like the burden of either understanding or forgiveness on the person that you're like allegedly oh, apologizing God. for. And I've then had, you're like, yeah. I don't know what to do with this apology. Like I right. hope you feel better, but it I, is what it is. Have so maybe it's like yeah. with your guilt, you yeah. should okay send some cat gifs and or emojis, right. emojis, but then yeah. also right. go vote cat and pictures. take political action Definitely. and organize. No weird, yeah, organize. I'm sorry's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no more weird, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a good takeaway. I'm not sorry to any of you. Correct. Uh, but thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks, for having thank me. The Philippines just emerged from midterm elections, and while it's good news for President Rodrigo Duterte, it's bad news for democracy and human rights. Half of the 24 Senate seats were up for grabs, and every single one of them went to pro-Duterte candidates. This is especially troubling because up until now, the Senate had been the last effective check against Duterte, who is immensely popular in the Philippines, but is widely viewed as an autocrat with an abysmal record on human rights. He clenched power in 2016 by touting a tough-on-drugs-and-crime platform, and since then there have been an estimated 5,000 extrajudicial killings, mostly by police. Another concerning facet of the recent elections, widespread vote-buying. After he cast his own ballot on May 13th, Duterte told a journalist the practice is integral to elections in the Philippines, quote, there are no candidates who do not buy votes. So that's reassuring. 
The whole murder is bad thing aside, Americans have cause to be very dismayed by what is going on in the Philippines. And here to tell us why is Jackie Mariano, attorney for International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. Thanks for joining us. Matt Rosales from Migrante Youth New York. Thanks for coming on the show. And Bernadette Patino from the Malaya Movement. Welcome to 112BK. Thanks. So maybe we can start by just touching on why Duterte is such bad news for the Philippines. Do you want to take that, Jackie? Sure. Um, So Duterte is a strangely popular president. Um, (laughs) uh, His approval ratings have always been kind of a, a, a... an all-time high. Um, I think it's it's, 79% recently. Yes. So um, a a huge chunk of the Philippine population um, supports him, despite uh, what we're seeing in the media about the atrocities of his administration. What we hear about the most is his um, drug war, which critics of the drug war often call uh, a, a war on the poor. To this date, and he's only been president for about three years, um, the number has risen as high as 30,000 dead in his war. Um, And that number kind of changes depending on who is reporting it. And um, it's not quite an exact number, but it rises as high as 30,000. And Matt, let's talk about these 30,000 deaths. So are these drug dealers, are these drug addicts, and how are they dying? So a majority of the the people who are uh, getting killed from the drug war are people uh, usually in the urban poor areas. And a lot of them are small-time drug dealers or people who just got mixed up. You know, there have been many cases uh, of uh, extrajudicial killings committed by the PNP or the Philippine National Police where the circumstances of uh, people's deaths were ve- were very troubling. They were very vague uh, in, in their um, fact patterns. One thing we do know for sure is that a lot of the big-time drug dealers in the Philippines are still not locked up. They're still out on the streets distributing drugs, and you know, a lot of people just get caught in the crossfire of all of this. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, after three years, Duterte has been able to say, oh, look, we're cracking down on drugs and crime, mm-hmm. but actually there have been no high-level arrests. It's just low-level offenders who are being executed. Yeah. And and for people who don't know what extrajudicial killings is, the word just means it takes place outside of the legal system. So it's sort right. of like vigilante justice and mm-hmm. anyone can be found with drugs, with yes. quotes around it, yes. and, and killed by the police, right? Right. Um, so Bernadette, we've mm-hmm. talked about how popular Duterte is despite all this. Why are 70%, 79% of Filipino voters saying, actually, this is great? Um, I, one, I would say like we should be critical about these surveys. Um, I mean, the, those who conduct it tend to like reward the people who like fill out the survey. So we have to be critical of who is conducting the survey. I think it's also part of the narrative of the Philippine government saying that like the people think that this is right. Um, I was living in the Philippines at the time when the drug war started. It ex- escalated very quickly. Um, even Duterte was inaugurated and the, the literally overnight 40 people were killed in the name of the so-called drug war. Um, and, and we also have to be critical of like, why is the Duterte administration um, wanting to pursue this? Like, what is the logic behind it? And I think what we see now is like this violence that's happening on the streets. They're wearing masks, no one knows who they are. And then this was sort of how vigilante killings began in the so-called drug war. Um, and then this same tactics of killings have been repeated with killing priests or killing lawyers who are defending, um, for example, farmers who are fighting for land rights. So you can see how the the anti-drug campaign kind of 
became this sort of smoke and mirrors mm. where um, mm. it's a way for the government to kind of use it as an excuse to say like, oh, we don't know who's conducting these killings. We can't claim it as the government. Um, even the statistics that Jackie was mentioning, like there's this kind of debate, like is it 5,000 that were killed? Is it 30,000 that were killed? We just know like deaths are happening. No one knows the number. So it's this deliberate sort of disinformation, confusion among the public. So then it's hard to have I think a, a critical public discourse about it because people are getting like just wrong information everywhere. And I think this right. is exacerbated by um, the propaganda that we see on Facebook. I mean, so it sounds like once you normalize extrajudicial killings by mm -hmm. death squads right. against drug dealers, it, it becomes just OK to to put out hits on anyone who opposes the government. Mm -hmm. exactly. And we've seen also a crackdown on journalists. Yes. Uh, the founder of The Rappler recently mm -hmm. uh, jailed it this past year, I believe. Mm -hmm. yes. Eight times and posted bail. Um, it's not nine. Eight, eight or nine eight times. times. Wow. Yes. And it's it's all on trumped up charges about what tax evasion and things yes. like that, right? Yes. But actually it's because she's been critical of the Duterte administration. Mm -hmm. And cyber libel. That's another charge that she was facing. Cyber libel. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. Trump has actually uh, been a big fan of Duterte and mm -hmm. his administration. Mm -hmm. Here's a, a quote from a transcript of a phone call from 2017. Um, he said, I just want to congratulate you because I'm hearing of the unbelievable job on the drug problem. Many countries have the problem. We have the problem. But what a great job you're doing. And I just wanted to call and tell you that. Um, talk to me a little bit about this relationship between Trump and Duterte. I know that Duterte has been called uh, the Trump of the Philippines, but maybe Trump is the Duterte of America? <laughs> Goes right. Both ways. Yeah, I think um, to also speak on Duterte's popularity, um, to add kind of a historical lens on who Duterte is in the trajectory of Philippine history is that he represented a departure from the typical or traditional politician or trapo, that's the term that um, folks colloquially call um, everyone who's in government. So since for those who don't know, the, the Philippines is a former colony, uh, arguably still very much a colony of the United States. Um, since 1898, the U.S. Uh, bought the Philippines uh, from Spain, along with Puerto Rico, Cuba, and Guam in a, a nice $20 million deal um, in the Treaty of Paris in 1898. And since then, the United States has always uh, ensured uh, their control of the Philippine Islands by uh, hand-picking puppet presidents or puppet leaders. So Duterte is someone who did not get this prior approval from the United States uh, uh, to rise into power. And so people voted for Duterte because he did not speak the same language that traditional politicians in the Philippines have. Uh, he represented a, a region in the Philippines that's often marginalized. Um, Mindanao is often marginalized from the Philippine national government. So the early comparisons that he was uh, uh, like Trump was not quite as as a 100% comparison in the beginning because Duterte was also running on so-called socialist policies. He had um, policies in Mindanao when he was serving as mayor for over 20 years that did benefit, arguably, a lot of people. And he also ran on a anti-U.S. imperialist platform. Um, if folks remember, Duterte uh, very publicly criticized uh, U.S. military presence in the Philippines. But then when Trump got elected, he seemed to kind of shift 180 degrees um, on his anti-U.S. 
policy. So mm-hmm. you mentioned this complicated history between the U.S. and the Philippines. Yes. Um, Bernadette, maybe you can tell me a little bit about currently the type of aid that the U.S. Mm-hmm. government provides to the Philippines. Right. Currently, so the United States provides $184.5 million in U.S. aid um, to the Philippines. Um, and I think Jackie probably could answer this question a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. A large part of this aid goes um, to funding the Philippine National Police, who are those who are carrying out the anti-drug campaign of the Duterte regime, um, and also goes to the armed forces of the Philippines. So there's a lot of joint trainings that happen between um, U.S. soldiers and Philippine soldiers, sharing of arms. Um, and, and this aid is kind of put together in one giant bag and it doesn't get differentiated of like, oh, which goes where, what goes here. So it's like one giant like lump of money just going to the Philippines and then it's not differentiated. So if there are human rights abuses being done with this aid, there's, there's no record of that. There's no official um, way to stop that aid um, because it contributes to human rights violations in the Philippines. So that's why our various organizations have been campaigning to end um, U.S. military aid to the Philippines and changing the language around that aid. I mean, that seems to be confusing, I think, right, to like mm-hmm. progressives who are mm-hmm. like, wait, why are, why is everybody always saying that we shouldn't be giving foreign aid to countries? It's a minute portion of our budget. Of course, we need to be, um, you know, amping up our humanitarian efforts to countries. But you're actually advocating for cutting back on foreign aid to the Philippines. Is that right? That's right. Um, and actually, the um, percentage of the U.S. budget that goes towards military funding is actually quite large. According to one of ICHIRP's member organizations, the War Resisters League, um, yearly they uh, produce a an infographic uh, pie chart that shows us you know, what percentage of the federal budget actually goes where. So they just released their pie chart for the year 2020, and about 48% of the entire U.S. budget is funding military spending. And, uh, and that includes not just U.S. defense spending. That includes defense spending for other countries. Correct. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And some of the, the top three um, countries that the U.S. is um, funding militarily right now includes the Philippines, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. The Philippine military budget, 35% of it actually is U.S. money. Um, and, you know, a third of it wouldn't function without the U.S. arms sales. And Matt, why is that? Why is the U.S. so invested in strengthening the Philippine military? Yes, and I I think it's because the Philippines historically has been uh, a very uh, key geopolitical uh, country in in Southeast Asia. Uh, I mean, just going back to to the Vietnam War, it was a a platform for um, bombing operations in uh, Vietnam during that time. And I guess in the early 2000s, when the war on terror really came into full swing, one of the reasons why the U.S. wanted to um, keep the Philippines very close was uh, because of their view that terrorist organizations uh, would eventually move to the southern part of the Philippines in Mindanao and really be an incubator for um, groups such as uh, Al-Qaeda and uh, more recently ISIS. And though there is uh, some truth to this, that there are um, uh, terrorist organizations that are affiliated with, with ISIS that exist in the Philippines, it, one, they're very minute uh, even today. And it does not, it sh- it does not and should not justify uh, the uh, U.S. funding of institutions that, that commit uh, atrocities of human rights. 
Um, and I'll just quickly add, like, I think we can kind of see the Philippines kind of stuck between these two narratives. So Trump has called the Philippines like prime real estate, right? Mm-hmm. Using, using his sort of language of being like this real estate dude from like New York, right? And it speaks to like the U.S.'s um, imperialist interest in the country. I mean, it's one of the many bases that the U.S. has like that surrounds China. So for two years... The Duterte administration and the the legislatures in the Philippines agreed to put that part, the southern part of the Philippines, under martial law on the reasoning that, oh, there are terrorists in Marawi, which is um, the town that had this big siege. And they claimed that, oh, ISIS put this big flag there. They're trying to, like, overthrow the Philippine government. Um, Marawi is a very small place. Um, it's a very, very small town. But the, it was this whole narrative saying, like, oh, there's terrorists there and that's what we have to put the entire region under martial law that's what we have to further militarize this area um and but what's the real reason for putting mindanao under martial law oh, there's a lot of reasons <laughs> um one um it will increase u.s aid going to the philippines if it's enveloped within this like narrative like there's war and terror um there's terrorists in the philippines so then the philippines would get more aid from the u.s also mindanao is like the breadbasket of the philippines there are these huge mining corporations that had been pushing indigenous peoples um, off of their land, um, pushing off natives from their land. And it's just for the sake of this um, sort of corporate interest in mining in Mindanao. So this further militarization of the area under this sort of guise of um, martial law and the war on terror um, is a way to control that area. And I guess Duterte being from Mindanao, um, he, he, he played a big role in brokering this violence that's happening there. Mm-hmm. Let's come back to the elections. Um, so this was a huge win for Duterte and his supporters. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Aimee Marcos, the daughter of Ferdinand and Imelda, won a, a seat, uh, won a Senate seat. Right. Um, how much of this can we attribute to voter fraud, to bribery, to vote buying, and how much of it is the fact that Duterte is seemingly popular? Matt? There is no good estimate of how large this or, or how impactful this uh, voter fraud was. We just know that it happened. I mean, Marcos, to my knowledge, is not really very a very big figure in um, in national politics. So it's really it was really shocking for me to find out that that she won a seat, <laughs> you know, right. as with many people in the Philippines. I mean, as an outsider, it was shocking for me, too, that, wait, you know, to me, I think of, of the Marcoses as, you know, being these corrupt politicians, mm-hmm. um, and the yes. Philippines suffered at their hands, and so to elect their daughter uh, mm-hmm. was surprising to me. And it seems to be pointing to this pattern of these autocratic strongmen being elected again mm-hmm. and again. And I'm curious about if mm-hmm. any of you have any insight into sort of the larger pattern of, of Filipino leadership in the 20th century and now to the 21st. Yeah, um, Philippine uh, politicians gain a lot of popularity through their names. And uh, the Philippines is very much an oligarchy where only a few uh, landowning families that make up the 1%, literally the 1% of the Philippines, also runs the government. Um, so Aimee Marcos's election into the Senate was kind of not a surprise because, one, we're dealing with some deep-seated regionalism in the Philippines because before the Philippines was the Philippines, it's just it was just an amalgamation of different um, tribes and nations. And so those who were from the Ilocos region, the north, um, people tend to vote for folks that are from their region. There's also a, a, a severe erasure 
of the actual atrocities committed under martial law by the Marcos uh, family that people growing up today who are voting maybe for the first time never learned about it in school, are taught that martial law was good for the country. And so if Aimee Marcos comes from that legacy, she must be good. And it should also be noted that Duterte's uh, family were Marcos supporters during the martial law era. Um, his father, who was also a local politician in uh, Davao, I believe a gov- uh, governor or mayor in, in Davao, mm-hmm. was were v- uh, vocal supporters of uh, of Marcos. So that that alliance just kind of fell into place uh, when Duterte came into power. It was mm-hmm. just a natural thing for him to uh, align himself with the Marcoses. And mm-hmm. as we mentioned in the intro, this is terribly bad news now that not only do you have Duterte as the head of the government, but the courts are in his pocket and it looks like now the Senate is not going to be able to stand in his way. And some of the things that he has said that he's interested in passing forward are reinstating the death penalty for drug crimes. Mm -hmm. And this was crazy to me, reducing the age of criminal liability from 15 to 9. Right. Uh, So we have that to look forward to with this new Senate, it looks like, unfortunately. Um, What can Americans, what can Brooklynites do if they're concerned about their taxpayer money going to funding extrajudicial killings by Duterte's government? Well, they can plug into iChirp's campaign to cut USA to the Philippine military and police. I think it's really important to um, urge uh, Brooklynites to to be part of this campaign. If not join iChirp, at least you know in in one's individual capacity, um, shoot an email or give a call to your to your federal representatives and and the senators here in New York. Um, um, so, if folks in Brooklyn want to, you know, stand against um, the fascist Duterte administration, um, they can join the Malaya movement. So, Malaya means free or liberated in Tagalog. Um, it's a it's a very broad alliance of um, U.S. support um, for freedom and democracy in the Philippines and to stop the killings. Um, so, we have a lot of things coming up this Sunday: um, the Philippine Independence Day Parade, and we call it the Philippine End Dependence Parade, as in like. Um, ending dependence of the Philippines on imperialist powers. Um, So we have this big parade. We're inviting everyone to join our contingent. All you have to do is wear black and wear one of our ribbons, and you can come and march with us on the streets um, to advocate for freedom and democracy in the Philippines. So if anybody's interested in learning more about the um, issues of Filipino uh, migrants here in New York or want to be involved in advocating uh, for their rights, for their their welfare, and to if they want to understand uh, more deeply what the issues uh, we face here are, um, you know, come join to uh, Migrante New York or Migrante Youth New York. And we should remind people that ITRIP is the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. Right. Well, Jackie, Bernadette, Matt, yes. thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. And that's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to send Shireen some cat gifs. Or you could review Woman To Be Can iTunes and please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Woman To Be K is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 